Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In the past, we've done podcasts discussing numerous presidents of the United States, including many of the lesser known ones. Researching the careers of these men has given us a number of surprises, and I've come away impressed by some of the people I thought were pretty much non-entities. Another surprise to us is that we have not yet covered George Washington, probably because he's so well-known we simply overlooked him. However, despite having read several biographies about him, looking at his career from a leadership perspective has given me a new appreciation for our first president. His career was lengthy and varied, so we've split it into four podcasts. The second will deal with his role as general of the armies during the American Revolution. Thank you, Richard. So, Richard, uh, actually, uh, I thought a lot about uh, Boston, and um, it really surprised me when we took a deep dive uh, into researching this. Uh, first uh, thing that surprised me is I had thought Washington evolved his thinking on a professional army versus the militia. And that that thinking was culminated at Valley Forge. That thinking, uh, my, or my thinking on that point, was completely incorrect. He immediately recognized the need for a professional militia, and there was a quote in there from Washington that really struck me when describing uh, whether the militia uh, militia army of revolutionary Americans could defeat the greatest army in the world. He said, "Quote to expect what never did and perhaps will never happen." Uh, and the um, so Washington immediately uh, recognized and set out to professionalize uh, the Continental Army. Uh, so that was sort of the first thing. The second thing, though, this was completely new to me, and we we touched on this or just hinted at it at our prior podcast on Washington's early years, and that was that his brother had died um, or had died of. Uh, tuberculosis, but it came when he and his brother or half-brother had traveled to Barbados to try to seek a cure or at least get him some better weather to live in. That trip to Barbados, during that trip, Washington was exposed to uh, but did not contract smallpox. In that event, he, he came to learn that inoculation could help prevent smallpox. That had significant consequences around Boston because up to 20 percent of the Continental Army uh, was exposed to or had smallpox. And he led an inoculation of um, troops which stopped the smallpox outbreak. The British troops coming from Europe had been exposed to smallpox and uh, did not simply simply did not fall, and those anything close to those numbers 
from the epidemic that was raging in New England at the time. Um, And I was completely unaware of that. I was completely unaware of the inoculation campaign. Uh, And frankly, that may have actually saved the Continental Army and the Revolution uh, as much as anything. And that was all while they were encamped around Boston trying to maneuver how into, of course, the decisive battle. That never happened. Uh, Here, Washington wanted to to fight a set-piece European battle against the greatest army in the world, and I think it would have only been disaster unless they somehow could have recreated Breed's Hill or Bunker Hill where the British marched up in formation and were largely slaughtered, even if they won a tactical victory. Um, I think Hal learned his lesson there. Um, And so, but the thing that struck me here, Richard, was that Washington submitted battle plans for, uh, frankly, frankly, a a direct attack on Howe's lines, and it was rejected. And he repeatedly did that, and that was uh, rejected multiple times, and he accepted that, and that was part of his success was uh, submission to authority. Um, So the... He did get Howe out of Boston, and um, he, uh, it really wasn't, I would say, maneuver, but it was uh, cutting off Howe from uh, any sort of uh, exit strategy from the city. And so he utilized the only exit strategy he had, which, of course, was the port of Boston, which he still controlled before any sort of blockade, effective blockade was put into effect. So I had a new appreciation for some of the things uh, of Washington. Also, I, I really thought that military ability and was a skillful tactical win, even if it did allow Howe uh, to run away to fight another day. Uh, he did get Howe out of Boston. Um, so that probably, as much as anything, gave a boost to the early Continental Congress and the uh, early Continental Army if, once again, Howe did come back to bite him in the ass in New York. Well, yes, Howe did get a, a significant measure of revenge in New York, which we'll get to shortly. But um, I thought there were several things about uh, Boston. Uh, one, his his desire to engage in a set-piece battle when his army was not, e- not even close to ready for that, um, I thought showed his aggressive nature. But he had even this early in the war selected a group of his of trusted lieutenants, including Alexander Hamilton, um, Henry Knox, Horatio Gates, Charles Lee, whose advice he, he would listen to. Um, one thing he would not tolerate was uh, criticism in public uh, of, of his superior. Um, and he eventually had a falling out with several of these uh, guys over that issue, but he was perfectly willing to listen to, and accept criticism uh, in the context of a, of a council of war. Follow up on that point, Richard, because it really struck me that Washington uh, would utilize talent wherever he found it. And you mentioned a couple of the uh, generals who stayed with him throughout the war. Uh, Nathan Green, or Nathaniel Green, rather, actually rose up through the, through the ranks um, uh, to become a general. And Washington recognized his talent uh, almost immediately and, and put him in charge, uh, char- uh, made him a trusted lieutenant. But the other one I, I obviously knew about him, but I didn't under- know his background, and that was Henry Knox. Henry Knox was, uh, I thought, a great engineer and had been an engineer in the uh, 
colonies before the war <laughs> uh, because he did engineering feats during the Revolutionary War. He was later the first secretary of war. But Henry Knox was not an engineer. He was a bookseller. Uh, and he was obviously a quick read. And as I recall, Richard, you're an engineer. So, um, you know, perhaps you were a bookseller, too, at one point. But the, uh, <laughs> oh, no, I, I just buy them. Yeah, I was I was really struck. You also mentioned um, uh, uh, General Gates. Uh, he did have a falling out, obviously, uh, with Charles Lee. Charles Lee had a a very different uh, falling out for other reasons uh, in New Jersey. But uh, the talent finding part of Washington and willing to take men uh, of different ranks. And in fact, Nathaniel Green was actually a Quaker. Uh, now he had to leave the church because he believed in the revolution, but uh, that's not the kind of place you typically would find a uh, subordinate general. And Green had great victories in the South later in the war, which led to uh, Washington being able to exploit those situations around um, in, in later on in Virginia and Yorktown. So uh, the talent-finding aspect of Washington, the submission to civilian control uh, is something that uh, we see again and again um, uh, throughout his career, but he really established that uh, here uh, as well. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, uh, of course, we've got a lot to cover here. So I think up next is what happened in New York City, um, which basically uh, Washington tried to hold despite having over 800 miles of waterfront and an enemy who was in absolute control of the sea. Um, so what do you think about his performance in New York? I thought his performance as a general in New York left a lot to be desired. Um Nevertheless, he executed a, uh, a fighting retreat, which saved the Continental Army. So um, it, avoiding encirclement uh, because Howe had landed troops uh, in Manhattan and uh, had inflicted high casualties. So his retreat out of, uh, uh, I think we would call it the Battle of Long Island. I always called it the Battle of New York, uh, was probably his finest moment. But let us... Uh, make clear that it was Washington who put himself in that position um, by allowing uh, how to flank his army and get around him so that he, he, he was in the position of being encircled. Yes. And then uh, he was forced to watch the destruction of the final fort and the capture of all its uh, troops by, by telescope across the Hudson, which uh, I think was probably fairly humiliating. Um. Rick Atkinson has started a new uh, trilogy um, about the revolution, and it's his opinion that Washington was utterly outgeneraled in this campaign. Um, among other disastrous results, the army was reduced, the Continental Army at that point was reduced to about 3,000 men. But following that, um, we have the, uh, the winter in Valley Forge and then the, uh, the battles of Trenton and Princeton. And uh, he, he just rebounded in a fantastic way there. Uh, absolutely. The, um, the battles of Princeton and Trenton, you know, are celebrated today. But in my research or the research we did for this podcast, it struck me that the celebrations we have today are, are, are well-founded in terms of what that did for the psychology of the American Revolution. And that if 
there had been a continued series of losses. Um, support for the revolution may have dwindled out in the colonies, but those two victories really, I think, turned around uh, in many ways and saved the revolution. We had uh, several of those points during the Revolutionary War, but these struck me as as really standout moments psychologically uh, for the revolution. The uh, Valley Forge, of course, uh, is I think story is well known, but uh, here we had uh, Washington. This is where I thought Washington had come to realize he had to have a professional army. And once again, I was incorrect on that. This is where he professionalized his army. And um, he brought in top-notch Europeans who trained his army, uh, who were under great stress. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about, we've had podcasts around cold winter work, uh, going to the Antarctic, going to the Arctic, and it was absolutely miserable conditions. I think the worst winter in 50 years. And yet he drilled and drilled and drilled his troops to turn them into pro, to a professional fighting force. And, and I think um, that was, was one of his seminal moments. Um, I agree. One thing that I had not appreciated was the, the narrowness of the escape. The, the Christmas victory over the Hessians, I'd always heard they were drunk and not paying attention. That's, none of that's true. Um, it was actually quite a brisk firefight that was not handled incompetently by the by the Hessians, but they were they were routed. Um, but it, after that, the uh, the enlistments of his men almost all expired um, on December thirty first, and he had to beg them to stay on. In fact, um, at one point he he promised uh, a group of soldiers ten dollars if they would stay on. To, for six weeks, but when they drumbeat for the volunteers, not a man stepped forward, and he had to basically beg them to stay with him, which they they finally did. And at the end of that couple of days, uh, he had an army uh, back up to seven thousand men, um, still outnumbered by the British regulars in the battles of Princeton and uh, Trenton, but um, but but it was a, a reasonable uh, ratio. The other thing that I had forgotten about, if I ever knew it, was um, it was another instance where uh, Washington put himself in the middle of the battle uh, on his white horse. And um, now the the entire revolution could have ended right then. Um, It was arguably reckless, but it uh, it turned the tide of the battle. That's a that's a great point, Richard. That's some of the leadership and personal courage I think we saw at the massacre, and I think he he just if he uh, I'm not sure I agree that he felt like he was invincible, but he certainly had personal courage. And at a time when it was needed, he seemed to sense that. And um, some of that you you also spoke about his his basically appeal to the men. That to me was another part of his personal courage that he would uh, lay himself on the line either to his men directly or on the field of battle. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a part of the leadership skill, I think, uh, of uh, George Washington. Uh, one of the other things that uh, struck me about these battles was the, the initial battle in Princeton was largely an artillery uh, battle. And it's where uh, Henry Knox um, 
who was in charge of the artillery, really showed what he had done uh, in the way of training. And um, they basically outfought the British artillery um, and enabled them to retreat. Uh, actually, retreat's not really right. The uh, Atkinson uh, says, inspiration is rare enough in the tumult of battle and genius rarer still. But as Washington listened to his lieutenants discussing their predicament, he abruptly saw with preternatural clarity a stratagem as bold as crossing the Delaware. The army would pivot east, looped into Corn- Cornwallis's rear, and then march north, which is exactly what they did. Absolutely stunning Cornwallis. The, uh, the other uh, battle kind of in this series, Richard, that uh, I had some familiarity with, but uh, wanted to revisit a little bit was Monmouth. And uh, Charles Lee had been one of uh, <clears throat> Washington's trusted lieutenants uh, up until this battle. And uh, in this battle, Lee had moved without Washington's knowledge and made an attack on the British. Um, the, and Lee did not display great personal courage. Lee fled the battlefield uh, ahead of his men. And that, that was something Washington could not tolerate. As I recall, he, he relieved Lee on the battlefield. And I thought that was, once again, a, a key decisive moment in leadership where someone who had been with him, someone he obviously trusted up until this point, but when it was not just a failure, it was not just a loss, it was uh, fleeing from the battlefield uh, far ahead of his men. That was not something that uh, Washington could tolerate, and, and he made a change immediately. He, he could be extraordinarily decisive. In fact, he usually was. Um, and you're right that uh, lack of courage was not a uh, quality he could tolerate in one of his subordinates. The final campaign of the war was was uh, Yorktown, which I guess in school is just treated as an afterthought. Oh, yeah, the British surrendered. It was actually um, a fairly complicated um, situation. And I think it, it, again, shows Washington's leadership in, in a very good light. Um, I know you have some thoughts about that as well. So, yes, uh, it was an extraordinarily... Um intricate campaign. And if people ever wonder where the U.S. military ever came up with land, air, and sea, they could look to the campaign which led to Yorktown to see that. I guess we should leave air out. But uh, it started really with the battles in the South and uh, Nathaniel Green leading the army and defeating, uh, I believe, General Gates, the British general in the South, um, which led Cornwallis to have to flee the South, or at least retreat from the South, and up to uh, Virginia, where he was going to restock. He put himself in the Virginia Peninsula, with the peninsula tip being Yorktown. Obviously, Washington moved in to try to cut him off, um, but he did so only with the help of the French. And it was indeed the French naval blockade, which I think forced Cornwallis's hand. Um, so we, you're right. We had a lot going on. We had a lot of interaction of U.S. and international forces, uh, in domestic and foreign, uh, in this battle, a coordination that we had not seen probably uh, anywhere in the globe prior to that time with international forces. And a couple of things struck me, uh, well, one specifically struck me about, uh, his relationship with a French general. Uh, Rochambeau, I'm sure I butchered that. He, Washington, 
basically ceded command to him because he was a much superior and senior general. Rochambeau declined that uh, so that they were uh, co-generals and equals, but he deferred to Rochambeau's strategy in many ways. And that strategy of siege coupled with a naval blockade uh, led to Cornwallis's surrender. Um, there was skirmishing, there was fighting. I think uh, Alexander Hamilton became very well known for showing incredible personal courage on the front lines around Yorktown is, is one that comes to mind. But this was an engineering win as much as uh, any any other type. Henry Knox, of course, as you mentioned, had the artillery, and they just moved the lines in slowly but steadily. Um, nothing flashy, just great, solid generalship. And that's a part of being a general, being able to adapt uh, to your tactics. But I was particularly struck with the Rochambeau relationship and how Washington relied on him so much because of his superior experience with siege warfare. Yes, yeah, so I, I thought that was interesting, too, and I, I had not been aware of it. Um, I knew there was some tension there in that they were um, co-equals. Uh, but when you compare it to the relationship between Clinton and Cornwallis on the British side, you see the difference between a functional relationship and an utterly dysfunctional one. Um, they were they were greatly aided by the uh, the British leadership in this one. There was one other uh, story that came out of uh, this battle I frankly was not aware of, and I'd like to spend a little bit of time on it, Richard. There was uh, uh, some tit-for-tat executions of spies or other nefarious characters who may or may not have been clothed in appropriate uniforms. And one of the uh, British persons who was uh, slated for death was a guy named Charles Asgill. And uh, Washington, this was after an American had been executed uh, for crossing the British lines. And Asgill uh, was, uh, Washington commuted his death sentence and indeed returned him to the British lines. And this action stopped the sort of tit-for-tat executions that were going on, which could have clearly escalated uh, to something very, very different and allowed uh, probably a large number of men uh, to walk away with their lives. And, and I was not aware of that story, and that one struck me as a great moment in leadership as well. Uh, no, I, I was totally unaware of that. The um, I was aware of the fact that the the war frequently got extraordinarily uh, personal and vindictive, um, especially on between the uh, the revolutionaries and the loyalists. But uh, but that was a story I was not familiar with. Richard, the um, I guess if I wanted to maybe see if we could take a few minutes to kind of sum up what we saw from Washington as a leader during his uh, generalship of the armies and. I guess there were three points that I really wanted to uh, to make. Uh, one of the authors we researched uh, called this visionary leadership. I'm not sure it was visionary, but it was, I think, critical to what Washington brought in terms of leadership and his success as the general of the armies. And that was, uh, number one, uh, the goal was to win the war and to win the war no matter how long it took. And he had the luxury of doing that because he had a Congress behind him that he ceded control to, who funded him more or less uh, with the uh, supplies. But uh, it was a, a war to win independence. And the war was for independence. 
Uh, it was not to come up with some other relationship with the British government. It really was for independence. And finally, it was to establish a Republican form of government. And Washington seemed to have these three guiding principles. Uh, may not have thought about them every day, but uh, at the end of the day, they led him to right up to success in uh, the war. It, it is interesting when you when you take sort of a 40,000 foot view of his uh, his role in the war. You do see some some interesting things about uh, leadership. One was his ability to balance stri- strategy and tactics, which is always difficult. One of one of his famous quotes about it was a people unused to restraint must be led. They will not be drove. And he really lived that he uh, he led his men. He he lived with them in Valley Forge instead of going to Philadelphia for the winter. Um, he had a great deal of charisma. His his personal bearing uh, struck nearly everyone who met him. And that got me thinking about the importance of image um, which we don't often talk about as a leadership quality um, because it's usually viewed negatively. But in this case, he just projected courage, solidity, uh, Republican virtue in the, in the Roman sense. And uh, absolute incorruptibility was another one of his characteristics that, uh, that everyone remarked on. And I think that uh, gave him a great deal of uh, – influence with people. What was the fascinating exploration of Washington as a general of the army, Richard? I recommend the Atkinson books. Uh, if you need a doorstop, um, they're, they're very handy. His, his, his series on world war two, especially the North African campaigns, I thought was really interesting, but this new one out, the British are coming, um, goes into a lot of detail about the, the early war campaigns. And I, I think it's very good. For now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. We hope you'll listen in next time. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed part two of our four-part exploration of leadership lessons from George Washington. Please join us again next week where we take up leadership lessons from the Continental Congress and the Constitutional Convention. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would give us a rating on this podcast. It would help in our rankings and help get the word out about this most unique podcast. Also, if you could tell a friend about us, I would greatly appreciate it. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.